ghoulish of greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes, as always, are courtesy of the phenomenal Bobby Mackey, and of course I am your host, Tessa Morrow. So I am here at Tombstone, always happy to be here. Am I crazy to be here in the hottest month of the year? Maybe, but there's a reason behind this craziness. I am here because they are celebrating 30 years. 30 years, mind you, of when the movie Tombstone was released. Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Kurt Russell, and the lovely late Bill Paxton. Great movie. So excited to be here. Three days. Movie cast will be here celebrating. Just my type of party, so I'm super stoked about that. Back to the episode. Today we venture over to Villisca, Iowa, to a home on 508 East 2nd Street. It's a simple enough looking house, a white two-story home with a sweet little deck. There's a sign in the lawn that grabs people's attention, written in blood red letters, reading the Villisca Axe Murder House. And if it weren't for this sign, many would probably drive right past it and not even think twice about this certain home. This cozy house was built back in 1868. And in 1994, the home was restored to its original glory at the time the heinous murders took place. In 1997, just a few years later, the Velisca Axe Murder House was added to the National Register of Historic Places. That very same year, it also receives the Preservation at its Best Award by the Iowa Historic Preservation Alliance. The year is 1912, and it's sometime between the late night hours of June 9th and into the early morning hours of June 10th. An intruder of the worst kind, sneaks into the Moore family home, and a vicious, bloody, and most brutal of attacks occurs, shaking Velisca residents right to the core, bringing fear into their hearts and terror and uncertainty into their homes. By the end of this heinous crime, an entire family, along with two young houseguests, will be wiped away from existence. The... Youngest victim is only five years old, Paul Moore, and the oldest victim is Paul's father, 43-year-old Josiah Moore. Now, Josiah, he's the man of the house. His wife, Sarah, and their four young children, Paul Vernon, age five, Arthur Boyd, age seven, Mary Catherine, she's 10, and Herman Montgomery, the oldest of the children, of the siblings at least, 11 years old. And of course, the family friends, the Stillinger sisters, Lena Gertrude, age 12, and Ina May, age 7. What occurs in this home on that fateful day was anything but normal, and it is here to stay in Villisca, Iowa's bloody history. The Moore family and the Stillinger sisters, they had spent the better part of the evening at church. 
and are now making their way home to retire for the night. Unbeknownst to them, terror awaited. Mary Peckham, she's a neighbor of the Moore family and a friend as well. She cannot help but notice that the Moore home is eerily silent. For a home that consists of two adults and four children and has two additional children staying the night, the silence is threatening and it just does not seem right to Mary in the absolute slightest. Not a peep in the house. No laughs, no giggles, no crying, no talking, nothing. Zilch. Zip. Nada. Mary, she makes her way to the front door and she knocks. No answer. Hello, Josiah. Sarah, are you home? They are friends and she has no problem with trying to enter the home to check on the family. Her hand turns the doorknob, but it's locked. Access denied. She's not one to give up, Mary. She reaches out to Josiah's brother, Ross, who makes his way to the home and uses the key that his brother had given him a while back. And upon inspection, he walks into the parlor room where he discovers the bodies of Lena and Ina. Henry Horton, he is better known as Hank. He is a peace officer and he is summoned to the scene. He arrives knowing that, okay, there's two young girls that are dead here in this house. But he is shocked, utterly shocked, to find the entire family has been murdered, axed, to death. And it's believed that the only two adults, Josiah and Sarah, well, they were killed first. Then their children and the Stillinger sisters, well, they were saved for last. Lena, the oldest of the children, her nightgown was actually pushed up past her waist and her underwear was missing. Now, the doctors say there was no evidence or trace of a sexual assault, but I mean, come on. Clearly, the murderer had ill intentions. I mean, obviously, with the massacre that took place, he had the illest of intentions, but he had perverted intentions. Let's just put it that way when it came to the young girl. Maybe he got spooked or something, or perhaps not. It's believed that after the killings, he came back with axe in hand and brutally strikes the deceased several different times, making none of the victims recognizable. Not only did the killer do this, but he spent enough time at the house that he covered the victims' heads. Josiah and Sarah, they had a bedcloth over their faces, while a shirt was placed over little Herman's head, a dress concealed Catherine's, and her brothers, Arthur and Paul, well, they were also covered up, and every single mirror was covered with cloths as well. This is going to be important, and you will hear more about this later on. Now, the murder weapon is found in the room that held the Stillinger sisters. One of the doctors at the scene of the massacre, Dr. Williams, warned the swarm of locals that gathered around the house. Don't go in there, boys. You will regret it until the last day of your life. Now, let's just say that things were different back then. It's reported that over 100 people entered the crime scene ridden home completely and utterly contaminating the scene. One pathetic asshole even thought that it was okay to take pieces of Josiah Moore's skull. No respect whatsoever. Absolutely disgusting. And any crime scene investigator's worst nightmare I could only imagine. 
No wonder this mass murder, this massacre of an entire family and two girls have never been solved. The scene was tainted from numero day one. I like how the Smithsonian Magazine described it. The murderer vanished as the Sunday sun rose red in the sky. The days after the massacre, Velisca Review reports on the gruesome find. Quote, when he opened the bedroom door, he saw two bodies on the bed and dark stains on the bed clothes. He returned immediately to the porch and told Mrs. Peckham to call the sheriff. The two bodies in the room downstairs were Lena Stellinger, age 12, and her sister Ina, age 8, house guests of the Moore children. The remaining members of the Moore family were found in the upstairs bedrooms by City Marshal Hank Horton, who arrived shortly. Every person in the house had been brutally murdered, their skulls crushed as they slept. The victims included Josiah Moore, age 43, Sarah Montgomery Moore, age 39, Herman Moore, age 11, Catherine Moore, age 9, Boyd Moore, age 7, and Paul Moore, age 5, as well as the Stillinger sisters. Unquote. On the 12th day of June, just a few short days after the massacre rocked the Iowa town of Villisca, a funeral is held in town square for the eight murder victims. Everyone, they're still in complete shock, and they're very much mourning the deaths of the well-respected and loved citizens of Villisca. The funeral procession had at least 50 carriages, probably several more than that. Thousands came to pay their respects to the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters, snubbed out of their lives, being wiped from existence far too soon. National Guardsmen protectingly blocked the street as a lone hearse makes its way to the fire station where the eight murder victims waited. Their caskets were not visible to the mourner's eye at the actual funeral, and they would later be hauled away via several carriages to Villisca, cemetery for their burial so they could finally rest eternally. While Villisca is obviously one of the more known cases, there have been many similar cases where families were wiped out via axe murderer before and after Villisca. March 11th, 1910, Houston, Texas. A little over two years before the Villisca axe murders, Gus and Alice Schultz, they're throwing an elaborate party. After the party is over, the family is not seen or heard from for several days by locals, friends, neighbors, and it is very unlike the Schultz family to just kind of ghost everybody. Well, on May 16th, a few days after the party and the family's last known sighting, Maggie Nelson, she's a lady who would do the family's laundry. Well, she comes over to the Schultz home and she is utterly shocked to see last week's laundry still hanging there. This is very odd indeed. This has never happened before. Like, what is going on here? The neighbor and Maggie, they begin to talk and they are both more than a little concerned. And the sheriff, he is summoned. Well, the smell of decay is strong and putrid in the air, and they know the outcome is going to be a solemn one and most gruesome. The sheriff department breaks down the door, 
and enters the home. And upon entering the Schultz family home, they discover five bodies, two men, one woman, a child, and a baby. Now, every single body has been attacked and brutally murdered with an axe. Gus and Alice Schultz, their three-year-old daughter, Bessie, and a six-month-old baby. So the entire family is accounted for, but that is only four people, while there were five victims. Who was the second person? Well, that would be Mr. Walter Eichmann. He actually lived with the family for quite some time, and it's believed, but I do not think it was proven, that he and Alice Schultz were involved in an extramarital affair. The bodies were found to be piled on top of one another. Alice and her daughter, Bessie, were found to be almost completely nude, and Walter had a mosquito net over his head. Bessie, she had bedcloths over her head. June 9th. 1911, exactly one year to the day before the Velisca Axe murders would take place. In Arnonwald, Oregon, time for the Hill family is quickly running out. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. They are soon going to expire. The day before the Hill family was wiped out of existence, Ruth Hill had went to Portland to visit her father and her brother who happened to have their very own law office. They couldn't help but notice that she was paranoid and she was visibly upset about something. This was very unlike her. They were concerned, but unfortunately she would never reveal what that something was. She never got the chance as the next morning, her and her family would be murdered. The Hill family consisted of William and Ruth and Ruth's two children, Philip and Dorothy, that came from an earlier marriage. All brutally murdered with, guess what, an axe. Ruth and her five-year-old daughter, Dorothy, there were signs of sexual assault. A neighbor is the one who brings attention to the house. Very much like what we see in Villisca, exactly one year later after this massacre. You see, people, they have a routine. Most do, at least. And the neighbor, well, they were concerned when... A certain amount of time goes by and they notice that the man of the house, he should have left to go to work a long time ago. He's one of those guys that you could rely on. If he says he's going to be somewhere, he's going to be there. He wouldn't just not show up. He wouldn't be a no-show. So for a house that is two very young children and two adults, it's, again, eerily quiet. She peeks through the window and she sees Dorothy's tiny, lifeless body covered with blood lying on the floor. Upon investigation, authorities find a clock that was broken, stopping abruptly at 12.45 a.m. It was at this time that the neighbor says that their dogs just started barking erratically. Every single window in the home, and I believe mirrors as well, had been covered with some type of clothing or cloth. We're seeing a pattern here. The murder weapon, well, it's a blood-soaked axe. No shocker there. And it was left at the hill house, propped up against little Dorothy's bed. The axe was stolen from a nearby neighbor's home. And to this very day, the Ardenwald axe murders are considered to be one of the most brutal murders in Oregon history. About 
half a year later, in December of that same year, a man named Nathan Harvey, who lived close by, he was charged with a quadruple murder. While Harvey did have a motive for the murders, that being him and Hill had a huge dispute over land, nothing came of this and the charges, well, they're dropped just one week later. This would not be the first time that Nathan Harvey's name would pop up when it came to murder investigations. Actually, in 1894, a teenage girl named Mamie was found murdered. The location, you may ask? Well, the one and only Harvey's property. And a couple of years later, in 1896, his brother murders their mother and then kills himself. The night of the massacre, he was seen by witnesses on the train and leaving the train when it came to the Ardenwald exit the town that the Yaks murders took place. And in 1917, a man named William Reagan confesses to the massacre. But the story that he shares, well, it's inconsistent with evidence, and he kept changing his story. He had originally confessed to a completely different crime, and it is during that time that he begins to talk about how he was there during the Hill murders. That maybe he wasn't the one who did it, but he saw what happened. He claims he had gone with two other individuals and that he stayed outside while the other two men, they were in the house, and some time goes by when he starts to hear children screaming and crying. Nothing came of this botched confession, and the Hill family massacre remains unsolved to this very day. Believe it or not, we are still in 1911, my friends. It is September 17th. And we are in my home state of Colorado, and actually it's just 45 minutes away from where I am in Pueblo. We find ourselves in Colorado Springs. May Alice Burnham and her two children, Nellie and John, well, they're found in their home, murdered. Curious and concerned neighbors and citizens, they're gathering around the area to pay their respects to the dead. They're mourning. They're comforting each other. And also to see what the hell exactly is going on here in their quiet neighborhood. Soon, neighbors, they begin to notice that the Wayne family, who happened to live literally right behind the Burnham house, well, they're nowhere in sight. Certainly being so extremely close to the victim's home, they definitely would have noticed the commotion and came out to see what was going on like every single other person in the neighborhood. Concerned friends and neighbors enter the Wayne house. And if things could not get any worse, here we have the Burnham family, a woman and her two young children found slain. And quite viciously at that. Well, tragedy, it strikes again. Henry and Blanche Wayne along with Lula, their one-and-a-half-year-old baby, are found murdered as well. We go from three murder victims to six murder victims within seconds. I don't know about the daughter and husband, but I know for certain that Blanche Wayne was found murdered in bed and that the killer had put bedcloths on top of her head. Again, covering the head, covering the face. May Alice Burnham's husband... He was in the crosshairs of authority's vision, and they arrest him for the murders. He, however, had pretty much an ironclad alibi. You see, he was the unfortunate victim of tuberculosis. He's fragile. He's feeble. He's weak. He's extremely ill. Man could hardly breathe. 
he was not even there when the massacre took place. He was in a sanitarium. His name, it's eventually cleared, and he dies from tuberculosis not too long after his family is brutally murdered. He was a victim too. He had tuberculosis, and he lost his family to a wielding, axe-murdering, maniac psychopath. In September of 1911, a family of three in Monmouth, Illinois, is brutally murdered with an axe. William and Charity Dawson and their 13-year-old daughter, Georgia, they're all found axed to death in where they considered should have been a safe place, in their homes, sleeping in their comfort of their beds. Now, at the scene of the triple murder, authorities found a flashlight with the words Colorado Springs and lovely scratched into it. That's weird. March 22nd of 1915, New York Times shares how a man named Lovely Mitchell is arrested for the Dawson murders and suspected of others as well. Quote, the warrant on which Mitchell was arrested charges him with the murder of William E. Dawson, his wife, Charity, and daughter, Georgia, who were slain in their home in Monmouth, Illinois, on September 30th, 1911. Since that time, communities in Missouri... Illinois, Iowa, Colorado, and Kansas have been terrorized by similar crimes. In every instance, the murderer killed an entire family as they slept by the blows of an axe. Unquote. Monmouth reports on the crime that terrorized their town, titled Barry Triple Murder Victims. Quote, Monmouth, Illinois, officers and detectives still are puzzled regarding the murder of William E. Dawson, his wife and daughter, Sunday morning. The belief is growing that the motive was revenge. The funeral for the victims was held yesterday. The coroner's jury will meet Thursday. The bodies of William E. Dawson, his wife, and their 13-year-old daughter, Georgia, were found in their beds in Monmouth, Illinois, having been killed by blows with an axe as they slept. The authorities have sent out a call for the arrest of an ex-convict against whom Dawson is said to have given information on the charge of horse stealing. The following month, that being October 1911, we now find ourselves in Ellsworth, Kansas. William Showman, his wife Pauline, and their three little children all under the age of five, are brutally murdered and discovered the following day. Mrs. Snook, a friend of theirs, comes to check on them, but there's no answer. She enters the showman house. The family had come to visit her the night before and had spent quite some time there. And as we see in the other cases, the axe is the weapon of choice. The youngest member of the family, just a tiny little defenseless baby, is badly beaten. In fact, this baby is beaten so severely that the head is severed. This is just major overkill. What threat is a little baby? What are they going to do? Pierce your damn ears with the crying? It is just so disturbing in every way possible. And as we see in the other cases, the murder weapon is left at the scene. October 17th, the local paper in Ellsworth, Kansas reports this, and it's titled Slayer of Family of Five friendly with watchdog and it reads this 
William Showman, his wife, and three children whose mutilated bodies were found in their home here last night were slain by someone who knew the Showman family accurately and who was on friendly terms with the family watchdog. This fact was brought out today following investigations by the police. The murderer completed his task and covered his crime well. To prevent the interruption of his work, he muffled the telephone with Mrs. Showman's cloak. After the tragedy, the axe with which the crime was committed and the lamp the slayer used were placed behind a door where they were found today. The lamp chimney was placed in the kitchen of the house under a chair and it is believed the crime was committed in the dim light thrown from a lamp wick. The murderer evidently fearing the family might awaken in a stronger light. Then another paper read this, titled No Known Reason for a Crime. And it reads... Mrs. O.W. Snook, a neighbor who discovered the murders when she called at the showman house last night, said today she knew of no reason for the crime. The showmans had no enemies, she declared. Mrs. Snook, said the dog owned by the showmans, came to her house several times yesterday and each time she had to drive him home. When I went into the house, Mrs. Snook said, the dog was in the room lying on the floor. I don't know how he got inside. The doors, they were locked. The authorities believe the murderer was well known by the animal and that the slayer must have returned to the showman house yesterday after the dog had visited the snook house. The murderer then locked the animal indoors. From the condition of the bodies, it was believed that the crime was committed Sunday night. The officers are looking for a former convict in connection with the crime. He was released from the penitentiary a year ago, having served a term for grand larceny. His wife, who was a sister of Mrs. Showman, obtained a divorce and married. There is a rumor that the man was seen here last week. Bloodhounds were used in the day in an effort to trace the murderer. Three times they were taken to the house and each time took a trail and followed it to the railroad crossing where it was lost. Today, a blood-stained work shirt was found in the room of the Baker Hotel, which was occupied for an hour or two Sunday night by a stranger who has not been seen since. It is thought that this discovery may help throw some light on the murder of the five members of the showman family. We now find ourselves in 1912. It's June 5th. Just four days before the Villisca Massacre will bring Iowa to its knees. In Paola, Kansas, Roland and Anna Hudson are found brutally murdered via axe. They had left Ohio to Kansas where less than two months later they would be found murdered in their own bed. When the couple are no-shows for events they had planned to go to, people, they take notice and they begin to do a little bit of investigating. They come to the home and knock at the door, where they receive no answer. The sheriff is in the area, and the people share their concerns with him. The sheriff and four men, they enter the property, where they find the bodies of Roland and Anna. Blood? Well, it's everywhere. And shocker, sheets, they're covering both of their heads. Upon investigation, it is obvious that Roland died instantly due to his injuries. Anna, however, unfortunately was not so lucky, and it took some time and more hits to the head for her to finally succumb to her injuries. Earlier in the week, 
somebody had seen a man nosing around, asking questions about the couple, and the night before the double homicide, a neighbor saw the same man at or near the house. The identity of this man remains unknown to this very day, as does the double murders. Five days later, the Hudson murders, the Villisca massacre, takes place. The Day Book out of Chicago reports this, June 14, 1912, the title screaming, Last Victims of Mad Murderer of West, and it reads this, J.W. Moore, wife and three of four children, who were murdered in bed at Villisca, Iowa, shows the room in which Mrs. Stillinger, visiting Moore's, was killed. During the last two years, a madman murderer has killed four whole families in the West. In each case, he used an axe. The murders have been at Colorado Springs, Colorado, Ellsworth, Kansas, Guilford, Missouri, and Villisca, Iowa. The last that of the Moors at Villisca occurred this week. The Slayer shows a terrible ingenuity and in making good his escape. Villisca police arrested Sam Moyer, a relative of the Moore family. Produced alibi, released. So... I don't know. There's a few things about this article that just kind of are off to me. They bug me. They say that three out of the four children, that being the Moore children, were killed. Well, every single one of Josiah and Sarah's family were murdered. And then they mention what seems to be one still injured daughter, not two of them. So I don't know. I will kind of stop nitpicking at articles, but I just did have to mention those two things at least. Another article out of Newhaka, Nebraska, reports this, June 13, 1912, titled, Arrested at Newhaka for Iowa Murder. And it reads this, Sam Moyer was arrested here yesterday afternoon on suspicion of his having knowledge of the murder of his brother-in-law, J.B. Moore, and seven other members of the Moore family last Sunday night in Villisca, Iowa. The arrest was made by Sheriff Jackson and a detective, both from Villisca, who are said to have traced Moyer from the scene of the murder. Moyer came here to visit the home of his son, Charles Bates, who was adopted by Walker Bates when he was one year old. Moyer's wife died about 25 years ago, shortly after the birth of her son. Mrs. Moore, one of the eight victims of the murderer, was a sister of Moyer. The latter had had a number of quarrels with his sister and brother-in-law, and it was testified to at the coroner's inquest at Villisca that Moyer had made threats to get even with Moore. And out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, they reported this on June 15, 1912. Police officials who are in constant touch with the Villisca authorities find added parallels in the Moore and the Burnham slash Wayne murders which are difficult to explain by the theory that the same person or persons committed both of the crimes. In Villisca, the murderer strung skirts and aprons across the windows to prevent anyone from looking into the house. At the Wayne and Burnham homes, bedspreads were stretched across the windows. In Villisca, he covered the heads of the victims with bed clothing, wiped the blood from his axe, and removed the stains from his hands and clothing. And this, too, was the case here. Here, as in the Iowa town, the doors were locked. 
an unfastened rear window in each instance affording a means of entrance for the axe man. So we have seven cases at least, seven that I talked about, there's probably more, where we see families being snuffed out from their lives. The Schultz family of five in Houston, Texas. The Hill family of four in Ardenwald, Oregon. The Burnham family of three in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The Wayne family of three in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The Showman family of five in Ellsworth, Kansas. The Hudson couple in Paola, Kansas. And the Dawson family of three in Monmouth, Illinois. All these cases, these people were killed with an axe. Mirrors and windows, they were covered. The victims' heads, they were covered as well. Axe left at the scene. Sexual abuse occurred with female victims, even the young children. Every case, with the exception of the Hudson couple, had children. That's 11 murders of children alone. And this is not even counting the Moore and Stillinger children. This is before the massacre in Villisca even happened. So 11 children, again, 25 people total. Devastating. Then enter Villisca Axe murders. Well, obviously we know that there were six children involved, two adults. It's insane. The massacre of eight people. Same thing. Axe is left at the scene. Mirrors and windows, they're covered. Heads of victims, covered. Sexual abuse or intentions on sexual abuse, check. And in almost all cases, a friend or neighbor brought attention to the crime scenes. The axe murders, they continue. The year is now 1912. Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia Moore, no relation to the slain Moore family in Villisca, they are found murdered in Columbia, Missouri. Georgia's son, Henry Lee Moore, was estranged from his family. He was a convict who had a nasty long list of violent behavior and history. He had recently been released from a Kansas reformatory. Some of the axe murders take place after he had been released. Henry Lee, he is upon the long list of suspects in the Villisca massacre case and is also the main suspect in the murders of his mother, the woman who gave him life, that being Georgia, and the woman who was a second mother to him and helped raise him when he was a child, his grandmother, Mary. He is a suspected serial killer and is responsible, or believed to be responsible, for several murders in several states. Years later, on March 31st, in 1922, a family in Hinterkaifeck, Germany, they're found brutally murdered. Not too terribly far from Munich. Like all the families that we have heard about earlier, time is running out for the Grubber family, and they are about to expire. The family, they'd been experiencing odd happenings. For instance, just days before the murders, the key to the home, well, it vanishes. Also, the family and their maid had heard odd sounds coming from the home's attic. It upset the maid so much that she actually quit. Little did she know that this action would save her life and the family that she cared for and worked for along with their new maid would soon be axed to death. 
Oh, the maid who got away. She heard sounds and she believed them to be of a paranormal nature. She believed the farmhouse was haunted. But what if it was something on the more sinister side? What if there was an actual living person, an intruder, hiding and ultimately living in the attic, waiting for the right time? To this day, I still see reports in the news of creepers doing just that. Somebody living in people's homes secretly for years, only to be caught trying to steal milk or juice from the fridge. Beyond creepy. Can't even imagine. People can joke about it, but can you imagine if it happened in your own house? Like if you have a crawl space or someplace that you never go, only like once in a great while. And somebody was actually living there and they were watching you, whether you were sleeping or getting undressed or whatever. That's creepy. No joke about that. So signs that things were just not right in the house, they kept popping up, kept pouring on in. Andres, he would find things in or around the property that did not belong to any of the family or maid. Like, for instance, a newspaper that came from Munich. Not only did the Grubbers not read this particular paper, but nobody else in the area subscribed to it either. And just a few days before the murders, Andreas reports to his neighbors and friends that he found fresh tracks in the snow that led right to a broken door lock to the farm's machine room. And later that night, the entire family bore witness to hearing the sound of footsteps. Very creepy. Everyone in the household was accounted for. So who the hell was this? Andreas, he investigates the area, comes up empty. Nothing at all out of the ordinary. No person, not a mouse, nothing. While he is vocal in telling friends, family, neighbors, and locals about the odd happenings taking place in the Grubber home, even when concerned people tell him, You gotta tell the authorities, man. He refuses, and just days later, he and his family will be murdered. It's believed that the family and maid were taken one by one to the farm where they breathed their last breaths. <sighs> the killing ends with the ever-so-young child, Joseph. Poor baby was only two years young, murdered in his bassinet, the most innocent of places, a place that was his safety blanket. He, he felt the most safe there, besides mother and father's arms. In his bassinet. And the maid, Maria, she was killed in her bed. Four days go by, and there is no sighting of Andreas and Kazila Grubber, or their adult daughter, the widowed Victoria, or her children, seven-year-old Kazila, or two-year-old Joseph, nor their new maid, Maria Baumgartner. The father of Joseph, a man named Lorenz, is concerned and sends two of his other children over to see if they could get in touch with anybody in the household. And thankfully, they do not discover the bodies. I can only imagine how absolutely traumatizing that would be for two young, impressionable children to come upon a bloody mess and just bodies everywhere. They try knocking. Hello, are you there? And no answer. So they leave and tell their dad that they had no luck. Lorenz, he along with two other people, go to the house where they discover four bodies in the farm and two bodies in the house. The autopsies are conducted right there in the crime scene in the barn. What stands out to me is this. Something that the former maid, the one who got away, Crescent Rager, shared. She said that one night a man named Joseph Fowler came to her window where he began to ask her a series of questions. 
questions that made the woman very uneasy and rather uncomfortable. He was fishing for information about the Grubber family. He also mentioned the fact that he was very familiar with the room layout of the house and which family member occupied which room. Again, creepy! He also shared with the woman that he believed the family she worked for was well-off, very wealthy. True or not, it's none of his business or concern whatsoever. The woman noticed that there was another gentleman standing nearby, concealed partially in the dark, and this was most likely Joseph's brother. The suspect pool is large when it comes to the Grubber murders. Even Victoria's late husband, who was believed to have been killed during World War I, but I believe his body was never found, was on the list. Joseph's father and a man Victoria had been dating, Lorenz, was on the list too. But why would he murder his own son? Another possible suspect is a man, a suspected American serial killer named Paul Mueller. In 1897, he was the main suspect for the murder of a Massachusetts family. He was their not-so-trusted farmhand. A woman named Crescentia, while on her deathbed, confesses to authorities that her two brothers, Adolf and Anton Gump, was behind the Grubber Massacre. Ah, deathbed confessions. Uh, kind of thank you, but authorities could have used this info years ago. Just saying. And to this day, the Grubber family massacre in Hinterkaifeck is considered one of the most gruesome crimes in German history. Then, of course, we have the infamous case in Louisiana, the Axeman of New Orleans, a serial killer that terrorized the citizens of the Big Easy between May 1918 and October 1919. All victims in this case were Italian. Now, this occurred a couple years before the Hinterkaifeck murders. By the time he was done, he had killed six people and he injured six people. Like the notorious Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac Killer, uh, the BTK, better known as Dennis Rader, and so many others, the Axeman of New Orleans just could not help himself, and he reaches out to the public by writing this letter. Quote, Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish for me, tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc., but tell them to be aware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For 
it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. Oh, if I wished I could pay a visit to your city every night, at will, I could slain thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans in my infinite mercy. I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devil is in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed either in fact or realm of fantasy, the Axeman. That Tuesday night, every club, bar, pub, and dance hall was jam-packed with the sounds of jazz bands in the air. And scattered throughout New Orleans, bands played in homes full of families and friends. No reported or known murders took place that night. The unidentified killer kept his word. Villisca? Well, they have several suspects. George Kelly, he was the reverend for the Moore family church and would later confess that he was responsible for the massacre. But he would recant his confession, saying that the police forced him into a false confession. Some claim that he hired a hitman to take out Josiah Moore. He was an English immigrant who had inappropriate sexual urges. He was a sexual deviant in disguise as a church authority, a wolf in sheep clothing. It said that the night of the murders, before the bodies were discovered, he had been seen leaving town via train. An elderly couple recalls seeing George Kelly departing the train at 5.19 in the morning. The train, mind you, had just come from Villisca, Iowa. He tells the couple about the murders. Now, at this point in Villisca, Iowa, the bodies had yet to be discovered. And it's not like today where someone can go on their phone and with a few taps on the keyboard have the answers to basically anything. And days earlier, he had been busted peeping into several people's homes. Creepy creeper. And shortly after the murders, the disgraceful reverend sends bloodied clothing to the laundry. His background is iffy to say the least. Two years after the Villisca massacre, he was living in South Dakota where he put an ad in the paper in search of a female stenographer. In the ad, he mentions that the successful candidate must be willing to pose as a model. A girl named Jessamine Hodgson, she reaches out. 
She sees an opportunity and she goes for it. She's excited when she gets a letter back. But let's just say the contents make a seasoned sailor want to blush. One of the ridiculous requests, no, scratch that, demands, was that he expected Jessamine to type in the nude. You know how in some cases where the killer can't resist but come back to the scene of the crime or they stick their noses in the investigation insisting that they can help or asking if there are any leads? Like when Sandra Cantu, a sweet little girl, went missing and a supposed concerned citizen and family friend, mind you, named Melissa Huckabee, comes and crashes the vigil and tells the police that she found incriminating evidence. Oh my God. Well, spoiler alert. She was the killer. She kidnapped, sexually assaulted, murdered, and disposed of the young, sweet child's body. A disgrace, scum, a vile human being that, let's just say, should have received the death penalty. Well, George did just what Melissa Huckabee did. Stuck his nose in the investigation. He couldn't help himself. He really couldn't. About a week after the massacre, he makes his way back to Villisca, where he impersonates a Scotland Yard detective. George is arrested in 1917, and he writes this confession, penning the words, quote, I killed the children upstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind, and I picked up the axe and went into the house and killed them, unquote. Uh, well, you know, George Kelly recants later on, as many of the suspects would. And by the way, the elderly couple who claimed to have seen him and heard about the murder supposedly through him, well, they quickly changed their story. I'm sorry, but what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Another suspect that was mentioned earlier with the Moore, no relationship, and Wilson murders is Henry Lee Moore. Dude killed his own mother and grandma. Flesh and blood does not matter to him, so why would a stranger matter? He was a heinous serial killer, a convicted axe murderer, a serial killer, believed within the span of one year to have killed at least 30 people scattered across the Midwest. This guy has no soul. Moore spends time in prison, and while there, he exchanges letters with a 16-year-old child. He becomes obsessed with this girl and tells her that they should be together. Well, she turns him down, just saying, look, dude, you don't even have a house. How can we be together when you don't even have a house of your own? He tells her in a letter that soon his mother's house will be his own. And in late 1912, Henry Lee Moore travels via train to his family home where his mother and grandmother live. In his hand, he is holding a rusty axe head. He sees his mother, Georgia, innocently sitting down in a chair, bent over, applying ointment on her sore joints. He viciously begins to attack her in the head and neck area. He then goes into the room where Grandma is sleeping, and he kills her too. Henry's plan was to leave the scene and come back a day or so later and, like, totally pretend he was visiting family. And, oh, no, he discovers the bodies. Oh, shit, he's so distraught and in shock. Poor guy's a victim himself. He just lost his family. Well, it doesn't take long for them to discover he is the culprit and charge him, but for bizarre reasons unknown, he is released. Makes me so mad when that shit happens. Dude clearly did it. Why is he free? Should have rotted in a cell. 
Next in the suspect list for Bliska was a businessman and state senator named Frank Jones. For seven long agonizing years, Josiah Moore worked for Jones. He was his number one salesman. Jones had a farm equipment business and Moore was a game changer for him. He really was. He was amazing. Well, Jones, he was a hard ass who could give two shits about his employees. He demanded hard labor, long hours. He wasn't appreciative. Moore decided enough's enough. Life's too short. I'm going to go out on my own. And guess what, you guys? He takes the most valuable and the biggest account with him. John Deere. Jones was furious when this happened. And who could blame him? I'd be mad too. Well, to me, that's motive. It was no secret that Jones and Moore, they despised one another. They hated each other with every fiber of their being, often going out of the way not to see the other. Many people, including Ross, Josiah's brother, and Joe Stillinger, Ina and Lena's father, thought that he did it. Speaking of brothers, as mentioned earlier, Josiah's own brother-in-law was on the suspect list, but later cleared. A man named Andrew Sawyer was also on that list, but no evidence could be found involving him, so he too was dismissed. And the final suspect I share today is a man named William Mansfield. He axed his family to death, his wife, their child, and his in-laws in Blue Island, Illinois. While he was found guilty in his family's deaths, he had an alibi with proof during the time the Velisca murders happened. He was several hundred miles away working in Illinois. He had the payroll records to prove it, along with a confirmation from his fellow workers. In all the cases that I have talked about, a total number, 47 people have been killed. And there are at least two close calls where the number of victims could have risen. A little past 2 a.m., on the same night the murders took place in Villisca, a telephone operator named Exenia was in bed asleep. She wakes up to the disturbing sounds of footsteps making their way slowly up her stairs. How terrifying. With each passing step, the intruder comes closer and closer to the petrified woman. A hand is heard fumbling with her room's doorknob, which is locked. The mysterious uninvited guest gives up and leaves. That was too close for comfort. And the same night of the Paolo, Kansas, double murder of the Hudson couple, a family is awakened in the middle of the night to a loud, intrusive sound. Their lamp chimney had fallen to the ground. This isn't like it happens all the time or anything. It was enough where they were like, what the hell? They were quick on their feet, ever so alert, as anybody would be in that situation. The family run to where the noise had come from to see an unidentified man in their home who manages to escape through one of the windows. Another close call... You can come and stay here at the Velisca Axe Murder House. Last time I saw, an overnight stay costed $428 a night, and up to six people can be in the group. So that's a little over $71 a person if everybody pitched in what they need to if there were six of you. That's like not bad at all. Full overnight investigation at one of the most notorious murder houses in America. So sign me up. In 2014, a group of paranormal investigators, they are there, and one lone investigator from Wisconsin decides to go up the stairs. He's alone, nobody's with him. 
Suddenly, the folks downstairs hear him scream. They run upstairs. They find him lying on the floor, all bloodied. And he's suffering from what looks to be actual stab wounds. That is creepy. Authorities and paramedics arrive at the scene. They can't figure out how it happened as no one was in the room with him, like at all. He was flown to a medical center and listed in critical condition. Many have came here to investigate and received different types of evidence, including my favorite, EVPs. One of my near and dear friends came here and she stayed only for a few minutes, but with promises of coming back for a longer visit. And I definitely need to do that trip with her at some point. You've heard from my friend before, Angie Velasquez, and before we end today, you just need to hear what she has to say from her experience at Felisca Axe Murder House. Hello. In August of 2016, my husband and I decided to go see the Velisca Axe Murder House. So we went and took the tour, and it was a really small house. I expected it to be a little bigger, but it was a pretty tiny house, and it has this overall feeling of sadness. I had always kind of been intrigued by what took place there that day. Um, it's just so overwhelmingly sad to think what happened to all those people, the children especially. After the tour, we were allowed to go back into the home and just explore on our own. So I took my recorder out and I had asked a few questions in the room that Lena and Ina were murdered in, I said, this is the room that they were murdered in, and I got a EVP calling me stupid. So that was kind of funny. And after that, we went to the cemetery, and it's so beautiful and peaceful out there, and the trees are so big, and the cicadas were out and making a lot of noise. And it was pretty cool. But we left some flowers for the Moors and for Lena and Ina. And it's just really sad, but the place is really beautiful. I would like to go back sometime and maybe just spend the night at the house one night and, and investigate, you know, and then also look around the town. It looks like a really neat town. So that's all I have to add. And poor thing, bless her heart, I did not know she was sick. I really didn't. And she got me this recording before the deadline. And so big shout out to Angie. This week's special city shout outs go to Westwood, Kansas, Stafford, England, Hoogaveen, Netherlands, Brewster, Massachusetts, and Cockeysville, Maryland. Thank you, everybody. As usual, it is greatly appreciated. You all are rock stars in my book. Big shout out to Angie Velasquez for sharing her experience. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? Oh, really? There's no need to cry. Hit up any of those awesome podcast platforms such as iVox, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, pod bean wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts you'll probably find paranormal prowlers podcast lurking in the background thanks and we will see you next week